Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, July 26, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. We ask you to go to commentary.org, few free reads, and then subscribe or buy our merch. That's commentary.org. With me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hello, John. Um, so the I, I wanted to talk about something else, anything else, but there's nothing else to talk about, really. I mean, we can talk about reconciliation and whether or not the budget bill is going to go through. Uh, nobody knows Democrats have given the Republicans a document that supposedly resolves all issues. But according to Axios, they don't have a final agreement on bridges, tunnels, uh, broadband, schools, nothing. So if they don't have that, I don't know what they have. Mass transit. Um, so I don't know what to talk about. So there's very little to talk about there. So we got to talk about COVID and the and the mask mandates and everything that's going on. I'm really sorry. I wish we could talk about something else. Um, so I want to read to you from a Washington Post article, uh, the headline of which is, quote, as coronavirus surges, GOP lawmakers are moving to limit public health powers. And this article sort of lays out the fact that, uh, oh no, the Delta variant is here, but as this is going on, uh, crazy libertarian Republicans are trying to limit the ability of unelected officials and governors to, uh, to rule by diktat or fiat. Um, something that you'll remember was brought to us in the spring of 2020 as a two-week exercise right? Two weeks to stop the spread. So um, uh, a uh, a lobbyist at ALEC, which is a uh, a conservative group that uh, uh, helps work with state legislatures on deregulatory issues, uh, named uh, Mr. Howenschild, is is quoted in this piece. Um, And here is the article, here is how the article by uh, Francis Steed Sellers and Isaac Stanley Becker. Uh, apparently, all people now have to have two last names. Here is what it says: uh, Howenschild says he has seen uh, the Model Act, that is the act that they wrote to to say uh, power should be limited, uh, providing it to state legislators if they need a, a model for legislation to write at the state level. He has seen the Model Act's influence in new laws in Indiana and Kentucky, where certain emergency orders now expire after 30 days unless the General Assembly improves an extension and there are new protections to purchase firearms. The group's model legislation, which public health experts believe would leave states relatively defenseless in an emergency, is not motivated by ideology, Howenschild argues. Now, according to the Washington Post, which does not source this, a 30-day state of emergency that that, uh, legislation would require uh, a vote by the legislature to extend 
would leave that being a limit, 30 days, would leave public health experts, states, relatively defenseless because governors and public health officials should have the unlimited right to rule by fiat when they declare that they need to rule by fiat. Um, I, I quote this. Yes, it's one article, so you can say yeah, it's one article, but it, it, it reflects a body of opinion, which is that efforts to limit the ability of state-level officials to close businesses, to order businesses to act in certain ways, to order individuals to act in certain ways, that 30 days is not a long enough time for an emergency to be managed. Is this really where we're headed here? Do they can do they do do these public health experts that aren't named but are alluded to here? They think that 30 days is not enough for an emergency? Help me out here guys. Well, we've defined, we've redefined what the emergency is. By any definition, the emergency as we understood it in 2020 is over. It was the uncontrolled spread of this virus, which would force the hospital systems into collapse. That is no longer a realistic threat. Um, so the threat needs to be redefined. Uh, <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of political pitfalls here for Democrats. I think they're not really recognizing because the polling doesn't suggest. But before we get to the, po before we get to the politics... I just want to go through this because forget COVID for a minute, okay? Governors have emergency powers or politicians have emergency powers to deal with life-threatening situations that are brought upon us by, you know, by, uh, by force majeure, you know, acts of God, however you want to slice it. Earthquakes, hurricanes, a terrorist act. <clears throat> and in this case... A pandemic. Um, no one ever thought that governors would assume emergency powers and then hold on to them for a year. This is all supposed to be contained because an emergency is an emergency. It's not a status quo. It's not something that goes on forever. Right? After 30 days, the legislature could meet and pass laws with a time limit. Right? They could pass laws that say everybody needs to wear a mask. It doesn't have to be the governor who declares it. You can pass a law on the 31st day to mandate masks until such time as whoever says that they're no longer necessary. There is no law. These are, these are executive writs. That is not law in the United States. And so what we're, what, what you have these, what this, the way this article frames it is going forward into the future, it's not enough for, for elected executive branch officials or unelected executive branch officials appointed by elected people to have 30 days to work their will in an emergency. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't like to use the word un-American, but uh, that's pretty un-American. Briefly, I want to read from uh, an interview that the Times uh, did with uh, Barbara Ferrer, who's the Los Angeles County now, you know, potentate um, public health official, which is really illustrative of why this is going to go on forever and ever and ever. Um, quote, 
she's asked about whether these masks are going to, you know, are going to be a problem for businesses. She says, I don't think that we'd consider wearing masks to be dis- a, dr- a disruptive mandate at all. Some people might be inconvenienced by it, but it doesn't disrupt customary business processes, which is kind of insane. But then she goes on to talk about how we're going to get people vaccinated. And she's extremely deferential to the unvaccinated, which I think is a clue about what we're seeing here. Quote, these people aren't crazy. They're not crazy people who are just being obstinate. Before we dismiss people as being completely irresponsible, many actually can't get vaccinated for health reasons. We all have to commit ourselves to helping people who have concerns in order to make progress. Jim Garrity over at National Review did human's work when he did, you know, broke down the number of vaccinated versus unvaccinated people in American cities and found that pluralities in places like Chicago and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Maricopa County and Harris County, Texas and Philadelphia, PA and Milwaukee, Wisconsin and on and on and on are not vaccinated. This is not a Republican crisis. As much as the press focuses almost exclusively on Republican, um, irresponsible Republican broadcasters who talk about, you know, vaccines as though they're basically, a, you know, a, a, a way to control you. Um, we're seeing vaccine hesitancy in the cities where democratic constituencies are forced to now contend with and mollify their concerns as much as Republicans are their, their base voters. And we don't hear anything about it. And that's why they think this is all not just necessary, but going to be extremely popular. And I think they're really misreading the rule on that one. It's also, I mean, there's a real, you know, the old metaphor about the, the frog, you put the frog in the pot of cold water and slowly turn up the heat and doesn't realize it's boiling. So we're at a simmer after the last year, I think, in terms of overreach and, and, and redefining what an emergency is. And that includes things like mask mandates and vaccination talk. But there's, uh, if I could give an example from the one of the nation's most incompetent mayors, my own, uh, Muriel Bowser, she did a similar thing recently where she uh, changed the public health, she, she ended the public health emergency, but she extended what she called the district's public emergency. So they just removed the word health. But the main things that she's still allowed to do are the things that actually aren't shouldn't be necessary if the public health emergency is over. So the number one thing she wants to do is keep the emergency going so she can continue to receive federal reimbursements and federal relief and grants and money basically pouring into the into the city. But she includes in there um, alter government services, like make changes to how services are provided to residents. That could include the public school system, the DMV, all kinds of things. Uh, it would also, she says, she can provide incentives to comply with public health recommendations, establish mask requirements, and establish vaccination requirements. So she's clearly deciding to take the health out of that, but most of these powers still involve a supposed public health emergency. And that's the part that that concerns me because the Republicans are right. This also happened with a lot of these voting requirements that were emergency measures during a pandemic. And Republican legislators now like, okay, let's go back to where we were before since the emergency is over. And then it's called Jim Crow 2.0. So we're seeing a lot of this redefinition of what an emergency is, and we're getting to a point where it's going to be permanent emergency. Uh, and it's happening with climate change, too. You hear there's a lot of talk um, uh, because now it's sort of like the uh, the American public has gotten itself sort of acquainted with the idea of living in an emergency that we should now declare climate change some sort of um, public emergency and allow that to trigger um, whatever, uh, you know, sort of uh, extended privileges that, that government has as well. But the, the, and, and the other thing I just want to say about this is Emergency powers to do what exactly? It's not. It's not as if we haven't seen uh, a year and a half of the very policies they're talking about not 
it's not as if we haven't seen we've we've seen these things prevent the virus from sweeping back and forth over the country several times in several waves. Um, it would be one thing if we were Australia, not that I not that I think that's you know what we ever could be or or that that's the way to go. But you know if if we had the kind of uh, lockdown or policies or you know sort of fortress. Uh, America that that uh, mimicked the kind of results they had there that brought cases down to the single digits. Um, what 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 would we even be talking about doing? You know, it's it, it is really just this um, sort of demented version of comfort. Well, and, it, and, and to add to that, I think it's also a way to try to habituate Americans to accept states of permanent emergency about things that aren't, as you say, aren't emergencies. It's not just climate change. We were told last summer that racism is a public health issue, a public health emergency. We've been told gun violence is such. And the message I would say to Noah's point, I agree, this is kind of a weird tactic for Democrats, because what's going to then prevent a Republican in his or her state standing up and saying, you know what, abortion is a public health emergency. And I'm going to use these emergency powers to stop it. There is nothing to stop that if but you want to go down this path. Democrats are getting a lot of feedback, I think, from, from the press and from polling that is really misleading, in my view. Um, you had this, for example, on January 20th, July 20th, rather, the Hill sponsored a Harris X poll asked the following question. Some places in the U.S. are seeing rapid rise in COVID-19 cases despite vaccination efforts. If there was a spike in your area, would you support or oppose reissuing mask, mask mandates? They found that 74% of all voters fully supported this, including 71% of independents and 59% of Republicans. Now, listen, if you believe that, you're out of your mind. You're in some sort of bizarre bubble. We talk about Twitter not being real life, but real life should be real life. And if you walk outside and you see in your world, 74% of people wearing masks, you're in a very narrow slice of the public here. As much as polling suggests that everybody loves this sort of thing, it doesn't match your experience, your lived experience, right? That should inform your view. Okay, so I think the point there is the question of aspiration and why this is so fiendishly difficult. Because if you assume that Harris didn't make up the poll numbers, they got people to say this to them, it's because people think this is what you're supposed to say. If people continue to think this is what you're supposed to say, then the feedback loop that you you think Democrats uh, are you know are 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 are, are being uh, misled by uh, does have a factual basis in the belief by you know people that uh, all things being equal, if everything is so terrible, then yeah, I guess a mask is better than nothing. But the public health messaging, a word that I hate, but I mean, we have to use it in this context, remains astoundingly incoherent. It was not incoherent before. It, it was before before the vaccines. We've got to mitigate. We've got to behave in ways that will help mitigate the spread. We have no other means of mitigating the spread. So we've got to do social distancing and we've got to wear masks or whatever. Now there are now there are vaccines. So first, everybody who wanted to get a vaccine had a lot of trouble getting it because they were being limited because of public health theories about how it should be handed out. So we're now well beyond that. And here's what they say. They say everybody should get vaccinated. And if you're vaccinated, 
you're in the clear. If you're unvaccinated, the Delta variant is a danger to you. 99.5% of the cases of people who have died in the last three months are from Delta. Uh, everybody who was hospitalized, almost everybody who was hospitalized is from Delta. Get yourself vaccinated. But we should all wear masks again. You're not at risk, but you should wear masks again. Because you might be at risk, but you're not at risk. But you might be at risk, but you're not at risk. But you are at risk, but you're not at risk. And Fauci last week said something very much like, I can't remember what it was. We don't want people to think that something or other relating to this. Well, screw you, pal. What do you mean you don't want people to think? Who died and made you the governor of people's brains? You're a doctor who works for the government. You are not the master of, you know, human psychology and this assertion by the public health officials that they know how to speak to people in ways that are going to get them to behave in ways that they want has now been so conclusively disproven by the last 18 months that, in fact, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the reverse is true, that they have lost public confidence, or at least public confidence with enough people, that it is... It is um, uh, self-defeating for them to go out and talk to people. So, look, everybody says this, right? It's like, okay, look, you can't order people to get vaccinated. We've got to talk to them. We've got to show them a sweet reason. Like Chris Christie said yesterday, there was a guy, he came to me, he said, I don't want to be vaccinated. Then I talked to him, and then he said, I'll get vaccinated. Well, okay. So if every human being in the world did that with one other person who wasn't vaccinated, then sure. Maybe that would work. But not everybody is Chris Christie. Not everybody has the facts to hand. Not the, the vaccinated are not themselves lobbyists. And they're protected. They're only being, we're only being evangelized with this notion that we, the vaccinated, need somehow to, we need to be sacrificial lambs to this process of convincing the unvaccinated to get vaccinated or sacrificial lambs to the effort to kill off the delta variant uh by i don't know by having it you know roam through the population while we stand around in masks it, it it's incoherent in the extreme to say what is being said here and it gets worse and worse and worse and stats are being misused my my nephew uh noam bloom uh who is the tweeter neon taster for the great twitter feeds and i don't say that because he's my nephew by the way it is one of the great twitter feeds um he he found this morning bob wachter the chair of the university of california at uh san francisco department of medicine okay uh author of the digital doctor so Bob Wachter says, "Oh no, here's the Delta variant. We're we're it's a it's a nightmare. I'm in a city with the nation's highest vax rate. Okay, cases are rising fast in our employees, of whom 93 percent are vaxxed. Uh, you want to bet that that's not true? But anyway, let's look at hospitalizations. On June 1st, we had one COVID patient in our 700 bed USCF hospitals." We never quite got to zero. None were in ICU. Today, we have 28 hospitalized patients at 
the hospitals, 15 on the floor and 13 in the ICU, a staggering increase, okay? There are 28 hospitalized patients in San Francisco and Oakland, an area with more than 2 million people in it, okay? That's 28 cases. And he's saying... This is a nightmare. This is a hard. This is the most dangerous moment to be unvaccinated. That's true, but he is basically saying we now that you know we now everybody needs to get masked up again. Well, Uh, he says by the way we see no evidence that efficacy is waning. No case uptick in those vaxxed in December, January versus more recently, and the vaccines are still more than ninety percent effective in preventing severe illness. Okay, so uh, the vaccines work great, but as we now appreciate, they don't prevent all infections. Yada da da da. And then he ends this whole thing by saying, as Dr. Leanna Wen convincingly argues, it's time to add back restrictions, especially indoor masking. He does a whole thing in which he says the vaccines are more than 90% effective. There are only 53 people hospitalized in a city of you know, in an air, a metropolitan area of more than 2 million, and we all need to wear masks again. But this is, okay, so this is what's driving a lot of us nuts, is this, I, because there's another narrative emerging now, particularly among, you know, kind of uh, progressive left, democratic left, mainstream media that says the real problem, the real reason people aren't getting vaccinated is that the Republicans have politicized the public health message. Everything's politicized now. They have turned this into a political issue. It's a partisan issue for them now. They did it. They're terrible. This is why people won't get vaccinated. Now, we know that's not true. Uh, The case in point, the stuff that Noah was describing earlier about some of the vaccination rates in democratic strongholds. But there's another problem here, which is that the public health messaging itself became politicized under uh, under Trump, not because of Trump, but in response to him in many cases. And there was never an acknowledgement of that. There was never an acknowledgement from any of these people that their their message on masking was mixed before so that perhaps maybe people are rightfully suspicious now when we hear the masking debate reemerge. That is what that's the faith and institutions thing. There's a reason and it's a perfectly legitimate, rational reason why a lot of Americans aren't going to listen to public health folks anymore because those people have never acknowledged the mistakes they made. That is important. It's important for leaders in these institutions to say, you know what, we got this wrong. Here's what we've learned since then. Here's why we're recommending this now. Here's the risk compared to what it was a year ago. All of those things treat adults like adults rather than like ignorant children. And that's a huge problem right now. Okay. So here's my, here's my ultimate point. This guy in San Francisco wants indoor uh, indoor mask mandate. He wants Gavin Newsom to somehow impose an indoor mask mandate. Okay, he has made an argument against an indoor mask mandate while arguing for the indoor mask mandate. You know what you need in these circumstances? You need the state legislature to make this decision. Okay, you don't need one person. You need the body of elected officials in the state who make laws to make a law or not make a law, because then you will have a debate in public with public officials who have to face voters, not one guy, not his public health officials who don't work for the, who theoretically work for the people, but are not, you know, will not lose their jobs or get their jobs based on, based on public opinion, unless they become highly controversial figures. All these people need to say is state legislators, 
need to set, you know, need to need to, um, you know, step up. They need to go into special session and deal with this in order to stop the spread of the Delta variant. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, let us do things by fiat when we are in public on Twitter talking nonsense. But that's just it, right? They can't trust the democratic process to deliver the outcome they prefer. Right. We talk so much about the assault on democracy. Here it is, right in front of your face. And can we talk about the political consequences briefly of this sort of thing? Because yes, again, now we can. Please, they go ahead. seem yeah, because, okay. Because it seems to me like they're walking into something akin to a buzzsaw, and they none of them seem even remotely aware of even the prospect that there might be a public backlash on this sort of thing. What is Joe Biden's? What was his chief objective? in 2021 in his first year of his presidency, a narrative that they had conquered the virus, that it, the pandemic was behind us and the economic recovery was ahead of us. And now you have all these credit ratings places, places like Goldman Sachs saying, okay, oh, everything's going to be arrested by the spread of the Delta variant and Soto Voce, the mitigation measures that need to accompany it. Um, both of those narratives are being squandered. And, you know, you look back on we talked about Gavin Newsom being in a little bit of trouble here ahead of his recall. All of the only reason why he's being recalled in the first place is because of COVID mitigation measures and the public's antipathy toward them. And none of this is going to show up in the polls, just like Republican victories in 2020 didn't show up in the polls. Republicans swept back into office after one year of being exiled in, in for example, um, Orange County. And how did Democrats explain this away? How did they justify this to them? Oh, we couldn't canvas. We couldn't canvas in 2020. We couldn't hold town halls. That's the best way to reach voters, town halls. Not the extraordinarily onerous mitigation measures imposed on them, all while coddling rioters who were incentivized to riot in the streets as a result of these mitigation strategies. We're, we're heading into a 2020 cycle that's going to look a lot more like, or 2022, that's going to look more like 2020 than the first six months of 2021. And Democrats don't feel like there's going to be any consequences as a result of this. And they are dead wrong. I, well, you could be right. As I say, that they do they do get poll numbers that tell them that they're not at risk from doing this. Um, yeah, again, just like the the Southern California sweep wasn't yeah. showing up on the radar. No, I agree with you. I'm saying that they they are they are going to have to you know be adults about this also, and ta- and 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 resist the siren song that Tucker Carlson is the problem here. And of course they also know that Tucker Carlson isn't really the problem here. They know this because they know that uh, the Jim Garrity numbers are the Jim Garrity numbers, that there is low vaccine compliance in a lot of major urban centers. Oh yeah. But the argument they give you, and I know, cause I've actually had this argument with very dear friends. Uh, <laughs> they'll say, well, that's true. And that's a problem, but there are just so many more white Trumpers who aren't getting it. And that's a bigger public health issue because there's more of them. That's, that's the response to that argument generally that I've heard from, from folks on the left about that. I, I mean, I, I know, I know, yeah. I know, but I am. I, um, I, I mean, am how do you still... square that with the people? There's, but there's when they're talking to their venues and they're talking amongst themselves, then they're just as 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 accommodating to the unvaccinated as the people in the right who are just asking questions. I mean, look, because they know that their constituents are unvaccinated too. Look, Mississippi, which is the state that people keep citing as the one that has the lowest van- vaccine compliance is 58% white and 38% black. 
Now, it is 58% white. And so I'm sure there's a lot of Fox News non-compliant people. But it is also close to 40% black. And there's a lot of non-compliance people there too. And as I think you keep saying, the idea that there is one group that should know better. I mean, it's it's implicitly this. Look, you're white. You should know better. Black people, you know. It's so condescending, isn't it? the, The level of it is just astonishing. And yes, there are obviously, there are deep cultural reasons in both places why uh this is happening i i I mean i i think there is a there is a straight a student effect here everybody who you have two types of people who went out and you know responsibly got the vaccine as soon as they could right people who are really scared or a lot of people common sense people with common sense people who are really really scared of covid don't want to get it and want this to end and then there is in that whole you know population like the people who jump to do things to be responsible to be the first people who are responsible right like that's why I say they're like straight A students or people who want the gold star. Well, here's the thing about the people who want the gold star: if you say to them, "Go out and get go out and get the vaccine," and they they spend hours and hours a day trying to get a vaccine appointment in february for their parents or themselves or whoever then they finally get it they get vaccinated then you tell them hey you know what you know what's really good hi you know i'm i'm dr fauci the guy that you really trust and i'm i'm liana wen the epidemiologist who writes for the washington post or i'm dr wachter of the university of california at san francisco go put a mask back on they're like okay it's another chance to get a gold star it's another chance you know, to get an A, um, but that's a that's a that's a big driver for a certain type of person, and those people are disproportionately reflected in elite opinion in the United States. And there's a there's an additional, I think, lurking danger to the fact that this game never ends. This hey, there's there's a new there are new ways for you to get a gold star. It's that I suspect <clears throat> we're pretty close to as good as this gets, right? Um, there's been a, a, you know, as we've tried to make the point it's, uh, it's, at some point last week, the vaccination um, effort in this country has been, in raw, raw numbers, kind of an extraordinary thing. Um, we've, we've had hundreds of millions of Americans go out and do this. The numbers have been brought down, especially the death numbers, um, to to, you know, below 500 uh, every day or so, um, vaccination rates have slowed to what they are. If you are vaccinated, you're generally safe from the Delta variant and, and certainly from the other variants. If this is as good as it's going to get, we have to stop. We have to be able to accept this. Well, and, and, it's, and we're nowhere near being able to accept this. And it's, it, it, it strikes me, it's interesting. There, there was a, uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders wrote a, an op-ed over the weekend in her, in uh, whatever the major Arkansas, uh, Arkansas Post-Gazette or whatever it is. Uh, and she, she, she gives a pretty nuanced argument for why, uh, 
people should get vaccinated. And rates in Arkansas aren't great. Like they need to be, more people need to be getting vaccinated in Arkansas. She acknowledges that. But she speaks to them where they are in a way that uh, is is compelling. And in a way, I'm sure Chris Christie did as well. She talks about the public health messaging being nuts, like saying, I totally understand why you might not believe this. And here are the reasons why I would encourage you to rethink that. And here's my own experience. And here's what I saw in Washington. And here's what I think now. And it was it was good. This was said to me by a very dear friend who's on the left who said, don't you see, she's she's just encouraging people to mock public health officials. And I do think there's this real divide to speak to your gold star student thing, uh, John. There's also among our elite uh, policymakers and institutions, and particularly in the media, this idea of technocratic uh, superiority. It's like, we know what's best, and it's just ignorance and stupidity and partisanship if people don't immediately agree. And that's another kind of divide when it comes to these sorts of public health measures. They're not speaking to people, they are condescending to them. They are not explaining why vaccination is good in the way that Sanders and Christie did. They're lecturing or hectoring them. And that's not effective. And I don't think we're going to see much more vaccination among those groups if that continues. Okay, so uh, Goldman Sachs uh, has announced that due to the uh, Delta variant and the uncertainty that has been uh, enter has has entered the American economic system uh, because we don't know really what's going to happen with the public response and with uh, vaccination rates and all of that. Uh, th- they've announced a slowdown in their expectations uh, for economic growth uh, this year. Um, they they are predicting, I mean, it's a massive growth this quarter. We're going to hear about that sometime, I think, at the end of this week. Uh, but maybe a little less than they expected, and things may slow down in the third and fourth quarters. And if this is a matter that should be of concern to you, as it should be of concern to everyone from the president on down, you need to go and subscribe to David Bonson's newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com, products of the Bonson Group, a $3 billion bi-coastal financial management and services firm run by David Bonson, who produces the dctoday.com around six o'clock every day. And dividendcafe.com comes out on Fridays at DC Day goes through the market numbers and what explains them. And Dividend Cafe takes a broader macroeconomic look. This is the best, most succinct description of uh, of economic trends and market behavior that you will find anywhere. Go to dividendcafe.com and sign up for the newsletters brought to you by the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Now, uh, you know, Christine, you summarized the sort of technocratic elite idea is, of course, the source material of original progressivism, right? That was Woodrow Wilson and the progressives of the first, second decade of the 20th century saying, expertise is what will save the world. We don't need all, all of this populism is terrible and all of that. What we need to do is appoint good people to control the behavior of markets and behavior of individuals and run schooling according to science, the latest in scientific principles and all of that. Uh, and this uh, managerial fetishism uh, that, that, that uh, gripped the, the Woodrow Wilson White House and then t- sort of took off uh, in the in the 20s and 30s. Um, that is progressivism. Now today we talk about the, the 
the left, the new, the hard left now calls itself progressive, right? That they don't really mean that they're progressive like, like that. They mean they're redistributionist, they're socialist in effect, if not in name. Uh, and, uh, but they, but they are very much of the belief that authority from the top needs to go and muck about in private behavior, private industry, private capital, private, uh, investment, all of that to make sure that things go where they should go and where it would be better that they go and all of that. Uh, and that is, that is pr- present day progressivism and old progressivism. And so you have this interesting dovetailing because ordinarily the left or, or let's say the kind of shaggy left, the, the sixties left or the post sixties left should be screaming in horror at the behavior of these public health officials. These are people who were suspicious and skeptical of government, government investigated leftist groups in the sixties with COINTELPRO and, you know, uh, you know, penetrated them. And, you know, the CIA is bad. Big government is bad because it does, because it, it, it seeks to limit your freedoms, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of sexual expression, freedom of everything. And now they've essentially become handmaidens, to this, you know, almost explicit notion that it is proper for these unelected people to tell people what to do, how to shop, how to travel. Well, it's even worse that. than it's even worse than that. I mean, I think the good, the contrast is between because look, the early twentieth century progressivism did a lot of really bad things. I mean, eugenics being one of the one of the worst uh, examples, immigration restriction, a lot of really terrible things based on really bad science and bad uh, technocratic uh, theories. They did a few good things too, like you know, your canned goods don't kill you anymore. This is a good thing. Like th- there were some reforms that were good um, and and necessary for public health. But what I what I think the contrast is is the example of the intellectuals to whom our progressives now appeal. What they, what they want to do is not merely uh, dic- dictate from above. They actually want to suppress the democratic process. So look at Ibram X. Kendi, who in the name of anti-racism wants to establish a federal agency that is a re- final review for every law that's democratically passed. So it's not just like the people get to vote, the representatives craft legislation, it's passed, the president signs it, it becomes law. Oh no, there has to be another step now. And that's this anti-racist bureaucracy that oversees all of these uh, legislation, pieces of legislation and appointments and whatnot. That's actually the goal now. And that, to me, for a, for a party that's constantly saying that it's the other side that wants to destroy democracy, that's pretty anti-democratic. I've, you know, I've, I've said this before, but there has been a total inversion on the left since the 60s. Um, the, the idea then was that the government was bad, the people were good, hence power to the people. That was the slogan, right? And today it's very clearly the people are bad. The people are so bad that we must empower the government to fix them. It is, it is, I mean, this is behind the emergency orders. This is behind the commissions on anti-racism, whatever. It is power to the government. Well, that's why I feel like the modern progressive left is as, is much more, uh, much more mirrors the progressive left of the late 19th and early 20th century, John, that I think you give him credit for. That's Herbert Crowley. Crowley, right. But I mean, but the point is that they, they said, we can make things, we can make things better applying the latest in scientific 
and social science and the, the, the stuff that doesn't that yeah, whatever doesn't, Germany was doing. Well, Germany, Ger- well, Germany took it on later, right? That's one of the things that discredited progressivism was top-downism uh, as applied elsewhere in the Soviet Union yes, and we, in we, national well, socialism. Let's not forget the state of Indiana passed an eugenic sterilization law long before Germany ever even got around that's to right. thinking about it. That's right. No, we. That's right. We we partially we influenced them, uh, and then we looked yeah, in FDR horror. FDR is an obsession with Prussian organization yeah. militarism I and mean, they, yeah. they were all very but then we looked right. but then we looked with horror at it and we pulled away from it and we have conventional american liberal leftist politics which are you know are not necess- do not necessarily speak to this specific thing but when you make a fetish out of you know higher education and you make a fetish out of you know degrees from the highest universities and no one is allowed to do anything without having Harvard, Yale or Princeton after their name or something like that, you end up inevitably back in a circumstance in which the idea is, who are you to say X? You know, this guy is a doctor. You know, it's like, yeah, he's a doctor. He's not a transportation engineer who knows how people act on subways. He is not responsible he is not a student of that he doesn't know what he's talking about necessarily you know he tells me i gotta wear a mask on the subway i'll wear a mask on the subway i even heard that there was a lot of you know transmission on the subway i hear there's transmission in small rooms with 300 people in them my subway car doesn't have anybody in them but that's the whole point of this is that uh it's all a way of of shutting people down and saying Ordinary people are stupid. Ordinary people are stupid and they need to be led. And this is very important. And they, and they, you know, and, and some, some of it's paternalistic in that way. It's like, we have to understand, you know, that's why these African Americans don't want to get vaccinated. So, so, you know, we need to, we need to talk to them and to, because it's a really understandable. Okay, but can I, yeah. can I just add one other thing? One one new, maybe more intense danger now versus uh, in the previous progressive era is that the capture of institutions, which conservatives have been correctly concerned about for decades, the capture of mainstream media, but also of a- academic institutions and academia in general, has created a class of people who, whose work, whose first it was you saw it in the humanities, then in the social sciences, and now we're seeing it even in medicine and the hard sciences, can be co-opted and captured by those same Mandarin to say, actually, the doctor's evidence shows us that what we want to do and what the the things we want to, the emergency orders we want to issue are correct. And then when the response on the other side is, well, there are other doctors who disagree, you can now suppress that or you can call that a conspiracy theory or you can uh, you can say, well, that person didn't go to Harvard. Our guy went to Harvard because they have captured the institutions. They've captured the outlets that disseminate information. That's the real concern, I think, and why free speech and censorship is and should continue to reemerge as one of the really important issues in the in this century right so we're talking about big government here we could talk a little bit about big tech again and how incredibly annoying it is you open your email and you've got you've got 200 emails um clearly or 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 texts or things clearly suggesting that somehow your computer your phone whatever are listening to your conversations because you get offers from things that you were talking about 20 minutes earlier on the phone that you didn't do a Google search on or anything like that. Uh, 
you know, it, it's creepy and it's chilling and it, 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 it gives you a sense of, you know, of how intrusive uh, big tech can be in your life. And that's why I use ExpressVPN, which I think is the best VPN on the market. And here's why. Look, ExpressVPN doesn't log your activity online. Lots of cheaper free VPNs make money by selling your data to advertisers, even though that's the whole idea why you get one. But ExpressVPN doesn't do this. They even developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. Speed. ExpressVPN now uses Lightweight, a new VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. I've tried VPNs in the past. They sometimes slow my connection, but ExpressVPN is always blazing fast, lets me stream videos in HD quality with zero time buffering. It's easy to use. Just fire up the app, tap one button to connect. And it's not just me saying this. Seen at The Verge and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash commentary today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary to learn more. Okay, um, Axios did a very interesting poll this morning, released a poll this morning, uh, you know, at Olympics time on trans athletes, trans athletes. Okay. Do you think that transgender athletes should compete against one, uh, athletes of the gender after with which they identify two athletes of the gender they were assigned at birth three, not to be allowed to compete for don't know. Okay. Here are the numbers. 20% say the athletes should be allowed to compete with the gender with which they identify. 39% say athletes must compete with people of the gender they were assigned at birth, meaning whether they were born male or female. And third, 14% say they shouldn't be allowed to compete at all. So in total... 53% of people in this poll say either they shouldn't compete or or if you're born a man, you should compete as a man. If you're born a woman, you should compete as a woman. Not that people who are born as women are trying to compete as men, by the way. It's mostly the other way around, right? 20% say they should should compete uh, against the gender with which they identify. 54 to 20 with 23% saying they don't know. Axios says Americans are deeply divided on how transgender athletes should compete in Tokyo with no option coming close to a consensus. Oriana Gonzalez writes, really? Okay, 54% say you don't get to come at all or... They're as bad at math as we are. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) Okay, that's a consensus. That's 54 to 20. At best, at best, you should compete... Against the people you you're you're you know who you know were born the same sex that you were born, only twenty percent say compete against the gender with which you identify. That is not a contest. Fifty four to twenty. Here's the contest. Democrats say thirty five percent Democrat or lean Democratic say they should compete uh, with the gender with which they identify. 25% say athletes of the gender they were assigned at birth. 7% say don't compete at all. So even among Democrats, it's 35 pro, 35 to 
32 against, and 33 have no opinion. Okay? So Democrats are pretty much tied on whether or not transgender athletes should be allowed to compete out of their, you know, in their new gender. And they have no opinion. Yeah. The have no opinion, by the way, are people who do not want to state their actual opinion on this, right. Is, right. is my guess. Right. And also, you know, we should add our, our usual caveat about polling. Um, it's always wrong, and it's always wrong in the same direction. Right. So, right. so we so can add a few is, points. Right. Let's add a few points. Independent, 18% compete with the gender you identify with. 35%... No, uh, athletes of the gender, you know, you were assigned at birth and 12% don't compete at all. So independents are 47 to 18. Republicans, if you add it up, 81 to 8. Okay, so Republicans, you know, are 81 to 8. But Democrats are 35, 32 with 33% saying they don't want to answer. And I think you're you're all right that basically probably that 33% falls pretty much in the, yeah, I probably they, they shouldn't, you know, they, they should you know, they're, if they're a girl, they should they should be a girl. Uh, if they have a if they have the physical morph uh, given to them as a boy, they shouldn't be allowed. You know, they shouldn't be allowed to they they shouldn't be allowed to beat girls at sports. Can I can I point out something that's really frustrating about the the trans debate? Because you there there's it seems like there are two separate issues. Like you have people who transition when they're adults. And then they want to compete in the, uh, you know, men who went through puberty. If you go through puberty as a man and you get all those male hormones, it does not matter what you do when you transition later. You will always have a physiological advantage in sport against someone who is born female. That is that is science. I'm sorry. That is what it says. It might not comport with someone's personal preference for what they want to do, but it is an unfair advantage that is even more is even greater than someone taking, you know, performance enhancing drugs. That is the root. Americans look at that. They look at a they look at someone who's competing against other women in track and field who was born male and went through male puberty and they say this just doesn't seem fair because it isn't. But at the same time, there's a parallel track in this debate that says Younger and younger children should have their puberty blocked with drugs. They should be allowed to transition at younger ages. And you can see where this Venn diagram is going, right? Like eventually they're trying to eliminate the the sort of visceral sense of unfairness that people see when they see someone who as an adult transition and has a physiological advantage and say, well, then we should let them transition earlier. We should let, you know, people who are six or seven who feel they're the wrong gender. So that that's where I think a lot of the danger of how the media portrays this is is headed, because as we know, the mainstream media outlets, particularly the New York Times and the Washington Post, relentlessly have stories about trans folks, and they're always in one direction. They're always framed in the same way. They do not talk to the critics of any of this stuff. And so the American people are being fed a narrative that that so far they're resisting, but that will become increasingly more challenging in the years to come. Okay, I just want to point out that uh, right now, running for governor in California is one Caitlyn Jenner, born Bruce Jenner, a gold medal Olympiad. Uh, you know, uh, a winner of the gold medal in the most difficult Olympic event, the decathlon, in 1976. Set world records. was insane. You've never seen anything like it. It's 10 events. You know, wind sprints, long jump, shot put, high jump, 400 meters. Uh, you know, the discus, the pole vault, the javelin, 1,500 meters, whatever, right? Uh, it, uh, unbelievable. Imagine this guy who... Like, you know, did, you know, beat everybody in the world as a man 
instead was Caitlyn Jenner in 1976 and competed as a woman. Like that's that's the that's the standard you want to look at here because if he had competed as a woman, he would have run he would have won that by you know 200,000% of margin uh, over over the next born female person. Not fair. It is not fair. And that's what people respond to, aside from everything else. And the fact that, you know, there is a significant number of people who think that trans athletes shouldn't compete at all also speaks to a point in the public discussion that you're not allowed to bring up, which is that, you know, this is, there are a great many people who do not believe that this is a, a conventional way to deal with a body and intellectual and spiritual dysmorphia that it is a that it is a nightmarish thing not a great thing and that it is something to be that we are creating conditions under which in the world this has become something that is praiseworthy rather than a condition that requires compassionate treatment and notice that they didn't give the pragmatic option either. And this has actually been true for a lot of the legal cases regarding locker rooms and bathrooms in middle school and high schools and elementary schools nationwide. You're not allowed to say they can have their own category. They can compete against each other, have a trans athletic category, which has been proposed by people here and there over the years in the same way that a gender neutral bathroom space has been offered up by a lot of schools as a way to protect the privacy and interests of people born female uh, from the people born male who still want to use the female restrooms or the female locker rooms. Again, a pragmatic, very American response. Say, okay, you know what? We'll just, we'll, we'll build a, a middle neutral ground where people who feel like they want this space, but that legally has been challenged every single time. And they've won those cases in many, in, in some, I think in Virginia, there was a case where a high school student won um, on appeal. So, you know, this, the option of trying to find a compromise is becoming, there's less space for that in our current <clears throat> debate over these issues, too. Well, you know, the thing about these boundlessly expanding rights movements is that um, they always start out to be, and they purport to be, and they gain strength being about the rights of people to do more, uh, to be unfettered. And they always end up coming around to infringing upon the rights of others. So the unfairness here is, 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 is the unfairness that someone who has trained as an athlete uh, who competes in a category that is defined by their sex no longer has the right to compete as that and shine as that, and excel as that. They, they, their, their world. They are now. They are being infringed upon. The rules have changed on them, and there's this tremendously unfair advantage that is coming in to quash them. Uh, guys, let's talk about the X chair. It's time to talk about the X chair once again. Luxury supercar of office chairs. Future of work has changed. So is the future of seating. The X chair is at the forefront of home and office seating. And their newest innovation, LMAX temperature regulation, will take your seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent pending LMAX allows you to experience cooling heat and massage in your low back. Look, if you're feeling a bit warm this summer, you could set your LMAX to cooling. Air conditioning in your home and office cranked up too high, set it to heating. 
to warm warm up and soothe your tired muscles. Feeling too stressed? Turn on LMAX Massage Therapy and relax. Even without the LMAX, it's the X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support was already best in class with incredible responsive low back support. But now with LMAX, your comfort is guaranteed. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's a letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 chair to save $100 off your order. X-Chair is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel Blagcasters, xchaircommentary.com. So news came over the weekend of the death of Jackie Mason at the age of 93 uh, this leaves, I think, uh, in terms of the major mid-century or sort of 1960s proud Jew, Jewish comedians, uh, it leaves Mel Brooks uh, as the only uh, who is 95 uh, as the as the as the last uh, last surviving remnant of. There are a few more. There are a few. Okay, really? Like who? Jackie who Green still alive. Okay, well, I mean, I mean I'm, I, think, I'm thinking yeah. of sort of you know yeah. Caskell's right. comics generally, I mean, right? They're yeah, all, they're yeah. All although, although, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jackie Mason was 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 a weirder uh, figure because wasn't precisely a Catskills. He wasn't like the Tumblr walked around and you know walked around the pool and helped in, in you know and told jokes around the pool. He was he had a slightly different. He came up very fast, very quickly in the late 1950s, having been a rabbi, having having actually. <laughs> had pulpits and congregations. Anyway, Abe, tell us about you and Jackie Mason and your, uh, in high school. Yeah, I had, you know, I, I knew him slightly because my father booked, uh, uh, acts into the Catskills, and the, the, the Concord hotel specifically and, and elsewhere. I did some other stuff around the country, but that was his main job back, back when that, back when that was a real, um, hub for, uh, American, entertainment and um i was trying to think of how this came about i'm not entirely sure but uh when i went to uh, uh my prom which actually wasn't my prom it's a more complicated story i won't get into it, but i went to a, a, a another school's prom. you went to a prom you yes, went to a right. prom yes and um on my way to it I went to uh, the symphony cafe which uh used to exist on the west side of manhattan's restaurant because I knew the um, the guy who ran it, who was also used to be in the entertainment business. He was a he was, in, he was a William Morris agent, and then he was alone. He was Rodney Dangerfield's agent. He was a great guy. He's he's still alive. He's, he lives one block one block from me. And um, um, me and my prom date and my uh, friend, who's uh, st- still my best friend, and his prom date, uh, we went and uh, we had a drink with Jackie Mason before the prom. Um, and I don't remember much about it aside from um you know there being like you know two tuxedo teenage couples uh you know sitting around talking talking to jackie mason uh on on the way to you know uh go dance to Corey hart but uh that's <laughs> that's 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 my contribution and i saw him again on the street about five years ago uh in the, in the similar area in the west 50s and uh, he was uh, walking on the sidewalk, furiously pumping these like small aerobic style weights um, 
talking with a woman who was like towering over him. Um, I thought he was the funniest, like uh, literally the funniest uh, comic. I think I think that Jackie Mason's The World According to Me, which which debuted on Broadway in 1987, um, after a sort of a a lull, he had been maybe the most successful stand-up comic in the country in the early 1960s, and then he got into a complicated contretemps with Ed Sullivan, got to be known as a as a uh, as a problem child, and then sort of like his career went into the toilet. And he he made a lot of money. He went around a lot of South Florida doing gigs and bits at condo associations and stuff like that. But um, out of nowhere, in the mid eighties, he he did this one man show in L.A. And actually, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner went to see it. Carl Reiner in particular, and said, "This is gold," uh, and helped arrange uh, you know uh, a a gig for Mason on on Broadway. So they rented out the Ethel Barrymore Theater, I think, essentially to have him do this. And Frank Rich went to see him who was then the critic of the New York Times, theater critic of the New York Times, and said, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And if you, the world, according to me, is the funniest 90-minute stand-up event. Like, is a, it's almost 90 minutes with one intermission. It is minute by minute the funniest 90 minutes that has ever been recorded, in, in my opinion. I, have, I know it by heart, practically. I listened to it 5,000 times. It is a work of genius, uh, there's never been anything like it. You know, most of his material, most of his famous material is about the difference between Gentiles and Jews, um, uh, which is often so surpassingly brilliant, both about Jews and about Gentiles and about the cliches there too and therein, uh, that that there's just never been anything like it. But his political humor was funny. His imitations were funny. Everything about him was funny. And if you knew him off stage, which I did a bit, he was exactly the same off stage as on stage, except that he wasn't funny. Uh, you would have a conversation with Jackie, and, it, and he would talk to you like this. He would like, I don't know what's going on with the Gore. Gore is Al Gore. What is he doing with the lockbox? The lockbox, lockbox. And he would sort of yell at you and sort of talk to you about politics or talk to you about Israel or something like that. There wasn't a joke, but he, he was. He was. It was as though he was doing a stand-up routine, but it wasn't funny. He was, in that circumstance, he was all but intolerable. But um, when he honed his views into material, he was, um, he was absolutely uh, astonishing. And you can, I think you can hear the world, according to me, on YouTube. You can go to YouTube, and most of it's there. You can also, you know, I'm sure you can listen to it on, on a streaming service. Um, and, you know, he went very, he got very conservative. He was kind of a neocon. He went very con. He was very Trumpian. Uh, he had a radio show. He and the lawyer, Ralph Felder, had a radio show and a TV show for a long time. But he, he was he was very pro-immigration, at least at some point. Because I mean, he used oh, to yeah. do a no, great no. bit about, yeah. you know, um, you know everyone's afraid of uh, having, you know, uh, Mexicans come to this country. And he would, and he would talk about how, you know, the, the, no, no one was actually, if you're in any room anywhere, no one's working harder in this country than the Mexicans and so on. So he, well, he really yeah, was no, no, a right. real yeah. neocon. Yeah. No, but he liked Trump because Trump was... Was, right. was was good for Israel, and he really and he and anyway, um, he was a he was a complicated person. He was not a very pleasant person, uh, and but his passing marks, you know, it doesn't mark quite the end, but like 
he was kind of the last person in the world who spoke with a Yiddish accent. I mean, there's nobody. I mean, Hasidim, uh, Sabar Hasidim in particular, speak a kind of weird Yinglish, sort of Yiddish English, but it's not the same. Like he sounds like my grandparents did. He sounds like he he was the last kind of remnant of a world in which people talk like this. And of course, the great joke about Jackie Mason, the ultimate joke about Jackie Mason, is that he was born in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, because his father was a rabbi in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Wasn't born on Lower East Side. He wasn't born in Galicia. He wasn't born in the Pale of Settlement. He wasn't born. He wasn't a Litva. He was born in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Family moved to the Lower East Side when he was five, which which is, I guess, A, where he got his accent, and B, when he realized at some point after after his smicha and after he uh, he had two congregations of his own as the son of a rabbi, uh, that his his voice was going to make his fortune. That uh, that he was that that was funny, and in fact, there was a Hanna Barbera character. Uh, there was a series of cartoons uh, in which he uh, called the Ant of the Aardvark, and he was the voice of the Aardvark. And then he is known to my son, my eleven-year-old Simpsons obsessive son, as 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 Rabbi Kratovsky, the father of Krusty the Clown, which was kind of his last his last towering gig in, in show business anyway uh so baruch diana met to jackie mason we'll be back with you tomorrow and for uh, christine noah and abe i'm john pot keep the candle burning